the F Word, Conversations on Faith. I am your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. Thank you so much to all of you that are listening. As you might know, we are changing the day that the podcast is dropping, so be looking for it on Jeff. When are we going to drop this thing from now on? Tuesday morning. Tuesday mornings. It'll Tuesday be there morning. for your, your commute. Yeah, for the commute. We're going to drop it in the morning, more midweek-ish for you to have something to listen to midweek. I would love it if you would share it with other people. We're trying to get the word out about it. We love doing it, but we also want it to be helpful for folks. So every time you subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, if you review it, wherever you listen, if you share it on social media, uh, all those things are a huge help in just letting other people know about it. And that would be, uh, we would appreciate that. I would appreciate that a lot. And don't forget, you can find me on Facebook, Pastor Matt Miofsky, my public page. Uh, you can leave me comments, questions there. I love to answer your questions on air. Uh, but today I want to talk about something that, uh, well, a few years ago, someone said, someone called me a progressive evangelical. That was the label they gave to me and to the gathering. They said, oh, you're like a progressive evangelical church. And while I don't really label what we do here, because I think that we break a lot of stereotypes at the gathering, I don't really label my own theology, so to speak. I just try to, I try to do what I see the Bible and what Christ's calling us to do. I, I understand the label. I think what it, what it means is something that the gathering has embraced, that that I try to put together and we as a church try to put together two things that have often not gone together in church very often. One of those things is that I think we are an evangelical church. What I mean by that is in the, you know, kind of the most foundational sense, evangelical means invitational. You know, to to be an evangelist is to share good news with other people. And that's fundamentally what I see our job as. I mean, I want to share the good news of Jesus with people, with as many people as I can. And that good news includes a lot of things. It includes the idea that God created you. You're not a mistake, that God loves you, not because of what you do, but despite of what you do, that God forgives you, that God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit so you can live in a different way. Like we, we believe those things and I want to share it. We believe that it's important for the church to be welcoming to new people, to invite other people, to explore faith in an environment that isn't going to judge them right off the bat, but give them space to be curious and space to wonder and space to doubt and space to discover who Jesus is. I mean, that is our passion to invite any of you that are curious or wondering or trying to figure out if there's a God or who God is or what God might want of you, like the gathering is a place for you. That's why we exist. And along with that are some things that maybe are more associated with evangelical Christians. Like we believe in the Bible. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and we teach from the Bible and we take the Bible seriously. And every time I stand up to preach, I try to make it biblically based. I want you to be engaging with the words of scripture because I believe that God can transform us through those words. You know, we have what's called a high view of Jesus, meaning we don't just believe Jesus was a good guy. We believe Jesus is the son of God who died for our sins, who was resurrected so that we can have a new kind of life. And we believe these things. So all I'm getting at is that we believe what Orthodox Christians believe. We believe in the things that the creed says, that God created the heavens and the earth, that Jesus died and rose for us, that the Holy Spirit is real and can fill our lives. So in all these different ways, we are evangelical in that sense. But we put with it something that doesn't often go with it. Along with being an evangelical church, I think what people mean when they say that we are progressive evangelicals is that, you know, we have a much more what I'll call open theology than a lot of evangelical churches have. You know, most notably, maybe, are kind of very public stances when it comes to women in leadership. There's a lot of churches that do not recognize the leadership gifts of women, don't allow women into certain leadership positions in the church, like the role of pastor or something like that. Um, Some evangelical churches, in fact, have really what I would call kind of archaic 
gender stereotypes around what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what each one is supposed to do and allowed to do. And, and we don't have that here at the gathering. We hold to what's called a, a egalitarianism or a view that we are created equal and that we have equal access to leadership in the home, in the workplace, in the world, and in the church. And so at the gathering, we have women at all levels of leadership as United Methodist Church. We have pastors that are women and um, people on our board that are women and people leading in all sorts of different ways. And that's different. And some of you who maybe don't go to church are thinking, really? That's like still a thing? Well, it is. It's still a thing. A lot of churches don't allow women into leadership positions. And, but maybe even more notably than that, um, from our inception, we've been a church that welcomes LGBTQ plus people uh, into the church, not just welcoming them, but affirming that they're created by God, they're created in the image of God, and they don't need to change their sexual identity, orientation, gender identity, uh, in order to be loved by God or welcome in the church. And, and that's a big difference. If you're gay or know someone who's gay, if you identify um, as, you know, gender nonconforming, I- anything like that, then you know the church is not, this is usually not the case. The church might welcome you, but then wants you to change. Church might welcome you, but you can't join. Church might welcome you, but you can't work with kids. Church might welcome you, but at some point you need to recognize, you know, that you're a sinner or something like that. And that's just not what we believe here. And so today the gathering is a church that welcomes LGBTQ people into all levels of leadership in our church. Again, we have people serving and people leading and people on staff, and we do weddings here at the gathering by our pastors and I've written about this, and I, I, I just believe that the future of the church is to be both, to be deeply evangelical and to, to believe strongly in Jesus and to want to invite other people to, to come to know Christ and to, to be the kind of church that fully embraces uh, people, especially LGBTQ people, especially women. It's not just on, on these two, these are just two examples, I think, but having a theology that, you know, looks at the world not as this dangerous place that we're here to constantly critique, but as, you know, but, but sees the world as a place that God created and wants to redeem, and therefore we're, we're more open, I think, in how we see uh, not just people, but a lot of issues, uh, social issues, and and whatnot. So I think we surprise a lot of people in that regard. You know, a lot of people just think, well, every evangelical Christian must be, you know, kind of this conservative and every progressive person probably isn't a, you know, a deeply religious or, or Christian. And, and we just know that that's not true. A lot of, you know, that's not true because you, you yourself might be described as a progressive evangelical. And so a lot of what you'll hear me talk about on the podcast, a lot of what I do is I'm trying to show how these two things go together, how a deep love for Jesus, deep belief in Jesus actually leads us to care about things like race or Black Lives Matter. It leads us to care about political issues maybe, or what some people would label political issues. It leads us to be radically inclusive of all people. Like it is our evangelical faith that leads us to these things. And so today I'm going to talk to a fellow progressive Christian or someone who identifies that way, who um, used to be in a conservative evangelical church, was disenfranchised by that uh, particular tradition, but instead of leaving, sort of forged a new road. And while we're all different in what we believe, and again, I don't really subscribe to any particular label for myself or for our church, there is a lot about my next guest that um, I resonate with and that I think you will too. So before I introduce him, I just want to offer an invitation. As you're listening to this uh, here at The Gathering, we're starting a new series this coming weekend. And it's called Real, and it's going to be all about the power of vulnerability, which I know this is like a popular word right now. Uh, Maybe you've read a Brene Brown book or listened to one of her podcasts or just been thinking about kind of how important it is to be authentic and vulnerable. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's... I think it's essential that as Christians, we do not hide, we do not uh, try to be something we're not, but that we get real about who we are, who God created us to be. And so I'm going to be starting a conversation this weekend all about uh, what it means to be vulnerable from a biblical standpoint. What does it mean to be 
authentic and vulnerable with God, with our friends and other people, and with ourselves, and why this is a better way to live. So if you're curious about this, if you know somebody that you think this will resonate with, I really invite you to check us out. You can check us out at gatheringnow.org. There are a bunch of different times that you can worship with us online. All those times are on our website. And you can also, of course, join us uh, in person at one of our sites. All of them are open now in the St. Louis area, Uh, one in the city on McCausland, one in Webster, one in Clayton. So we'd love to have you, uh, I'd love to have you join me live or um, online. Either way, I hope you'll do that. Starts this weekend and invite somebody that you think uh, would find that interesting. My guest today is Colby Martin. He is an author, a fellow podcaster, and a co-pastor of Sojourn Grace Collective, a progressive church in San Diego. But most of all, he has a story and a journey that a lot of us can resonate with. He experienced the rejection of mainstream Christianity that so many people have, but he found a new home in a more progressive form of Christianity. And we're going to talk about that. Colby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Now, do you prefer Reverend Matt, Pastor Matt, Mr. Matt? I prefer the most reverend. Okay. Matt. Most no, high reverend. You can call me Matt. I Great. we were talking off air. I, I can't believe we haven't met yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really glad. I really am glad to have you on the show because I think your passions and mine align in so many ways. But before I get to all that, I wanted to just start with you because uh, I'm always curious about how people grew up. Tell me about how you grew up and the role faith played in your upbringing. Yeah. Okay. How did I grow up? I grew up the middle child of three brothers into a family that was, my dad came from a long line of Baptists, so rooted in the Baptist tradition. And we were, I don't know, that sort of stereotypical church family that went to church multiple times a week for choir practice and youth group and, and, uh, you know, multiple church services. And that was kind of our life growing up. Um, but my parents separated and, and divorced when I was in that eight, nine, ten range. It was a it was a long process, Matt. But we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> but that did absolutely impact then our familial faith journey. As my dad was sort of ceremoniously shown the door of the church, uh, and then my mom and us brothers tried to keep going to the Baptist church, but they didn't really know what to do with the single mom and, and kids. It yeah. was just. It was awkward for everybody. So we ended up leaving that church. And then my mom just found a kind of a generic evangelical church for us. Um, So I guess what I would say about growing up is that, yes, church was a regular part of my life and our life. And combined with a pretty unstable familial environment um, that was, um, yeah, there was a a lot of chaos and insecurity. And so then in high school, when I kind of came into a place of finding my own faith in the youth group, the church became a real, uh, a safe place, a, a secure place for me. And pouring myself and throwing myself into, at that time, this evangelical world of doctrine and theology, because I just, I've always loved study. I've always been studious. I've always loved school. And so then just applying that passion to the Bible and to uh, apologetics. God, I was just thinking about apologetics this morning, Matt. And I'm like, you know what? What if I, I have these ideas all the time? Fortunately, most of them don't come to fruition or I would never have time for anything. <laughs> but I'm like, what if I created a course on progressive apologetics? Because I'm really good at like old school evangelical apologetics. But then out here in progressive Christian world, it can get a little harder to think of like that readily answerable response yeah. to things. Anyway, well, I, I think about that actually a lot. For those people who are wondering what the heck is apologetics, it's, it's just essentially ways to defend the faith or to explain why you believe what you believe and, and yeah. maybe to answer people who, uh, or in lines of inquiry that are typical. And so I, I th- no, I, I think it's important that, that progressives do that work. And I, so often we don't, and I actually want to get to that. Like when we later on, I want to talk to you. I, I think there's so much promise to more progressive forms of Christianity, but then maybe what, what are the challenges or what do we need? And this might actually be one of them, but before I, I jump ahead, I mean, you ended up 
out of that high school experience and, and I want you to fill in the blanks, but you began to sense a call to ministry. I don't know if it was in high school or after, and then you decided to attend seminary kind of what first led you into ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So my senior year of high school, I went on a youth trip. So I grew up in Oregon, senior year of high school, youth trip down to Southern California, which is actually where I live now, uh, to Huntington beach and our youth, uh, it was a youth conference that was designed to train high school students in the morning on like how to do random street witnessing. Mm-hmm. And then they sent us out two by two, obviously, because it's biblical, uh, into the beaches of Southern California to do to just talk to strangers. Which, by the way, I noticed they never bring those <laughs> witnessing youth groups to like hot, humid St. Louis, Missouri in the summertime. They don't, to do wi- they? We don't get witnessed to ever. It's always like the beach in Florida or Southern California. We'll talk about that best, later, though. but uh, for the best. That's funny. Um, yeah. And I remember that first day being sent out armed with like, tracks for Romans road, uh, which is like this sort of, I don't know if I can say, you said you don't do any editing. I'm going to say bastardized. And then you have the option to edit that out. This bastardized version of the gospel in this like four page pamphlet that tells you how you can just be saved and make sure that when you die, you go to heaven. And I'm out there on the beaches trying to talk to random people about this stuff. And I get back to the room that I'm staying in that afternoon and I lay on my bed and I just start weeping which was incredibly uncharacteristic for me at the time. Like I'm a type three on the Enneagram, which means I'm the center of the feelings heart triad, but I'm also the most disconnected from my feelings. So I have tons of feelings, but I really (laughs) never am aware of them or process them. And especially as a teenage boy, there was no processing of feelings, but I'm weeping on my bed, Matt. And I'm, I'm conscious of this moment in my life. Now, back at the time, I would have talked about it like this. I was conscious of God saying to me, Colby, you have two options in this moment. Like this is a this is a this is a fork in the road for you. And you can keep going on the path you're going, which at that time would have meant that I was a nominal Christian. It was kind of just one more thing that I added to my my merit badge of things that hey, look at all the things that I do that make me cool. I'm a jock and a scholar and a, a student body president and it's just one more thing to kind of build up my credentials. Like you can keep doing that and kind of pretending to be Christian, or or you can take this moment to realize the following. And what I realized, Matt, is I was out there on the beaches telling people to have a relationship with Jesus when I had no concept of that for myself. Like the, the fraudulency of my faith was revealed in that moment in a way that I could have never anticipated. And so I took that moment to, to, to realize, okay, that's the path I want. I want to stop being a fraud about this, I want to passionately pursue what it means to be in a relationship with God through Jesus. And that week, over the course of that week, I I sensed this call to do that as like a, in a full-time ministry context. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I want to give my life to. I yeah. want to give my life to learning about Jesus, studying the Bible, teaching people about how they can know God through Jesus. And yeah, I changed my whole career trajectory from graphic design to ministry, uh, went to college, got my ministry degree, went to seminary and, and just knew. Like, you went this, straight this through. Yeah. So uh, you, you talk about, you know, you, you got out of seminary, began to serve in the church and something began to change inside you that eventually led to, uh, I don't know if rejection is the right word, but a rejection of sorts. You actually write your latest book is called The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. So the title says a lot. I don't want to give the book away, but can you talk a little bit about what started to shift or change for you as you began serving early in your ministry? And can you talk a little bit about the what came after that? Sure. Yeah, so my, my college experience was just a continuation of that Baptist heritage evangelical machine. And so I graduated college, top of my class, again, just knowing all the right answers. And by right answers, I put an asterisk, Mm -hmm. read down below, within this very narrow evangelical Baptist world. (laughs) So that was, I was trained that that this is the truth. We have this this unfettered access to what is true. You can trace our tradition all the way back to the Apostle Paul, usually not all the way to Jesus, though, by the way. Like, it was more about Paul than Jesus, ironically. Um, 
And so I knew all the right answers. And uh, but shortly after graduating college, I started reading books that my college professors never would have approved. Mm -hmm. Books by guys like Brian McLaren, Gasp, or N.T. Wright, uh, Not a Friend for Baptist. And what I discovered, Matt, and I'll keep this short, what I discovered is that there, as it turns out, and this blew my mind, there have been other ways that Christian men and women throughout the centuries have not only approached and practiced the faith of Christianity, but they have asked different questions. They've come to different answers. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more fluidity and and dynamism within the Christian faith than I was led to believe. And I, I felt a little bit hoodwinked by it um, because in our, in our context, it was here is the Baptist evangelical truth. Everything else is a cult. Mm-hmm. I even took a class in college of world religions and cults. And I, the number of sects that were in the list of cults within the Christian religion was just Mind blowing. Yeah. So that's a cult. Like, we're supposed to call that a cult, and that's a cult, and that's a cult. Um, So I graduate and I start just reading and learning to ask different questions. I started learning that maybe having an answer such as, I don't know, is acceptable, that maybe um, it's okay to be in a place of journey and discovery. But let me ask you, you were doing this while you were serving kind of one of these typical evangelical churches. So what was mm-hmm. that like? I mean, here you are kind of a leader who's questioning some of the foundational things yeah. that those kind of yeah. people believe. Yeah. It was, uh, it was scary. It was scary relationally with regards to me and some family members and me and my coworkers. It was scary vocationally um, because I could sense that there were some lines that I could not approach, mm-hmm. let alone cross. And so a lot of this discovery and research, and it was like a lot of it was like Nicodemus at, in the night, but I didn't really have a Jesus to talk to. You know, I was just sort of like studying these books and and diving into the scriptures in ways that I hadn't before and, and really internalizing a lot of it because there really wasn't a context to have the confer- conversations of discovery and exploration in, in a way that didn't raise people's alarm. So how did it come to a head? I mean, at some point you began voicing (laughs) this stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. At some point, (laughs) if you keep blowing air into a balloon with no release valve, something bad is going to happen. And this is, so this is what I did for years. I was just blowing air into my own personal little balloon of faith exploration. And I should point out too, that, that, that so much of what led to my eventual uh, taking down of my, I think, I think of oftentimes, uh, you know, the game Jenga, the tower oh, yeah. building game. And I oftentimes think that, that we are given and, or we build our religious constructs uh, that we might call our faith, the things that we believe as like a Jenga tower. And then there comes a time where we're invited to take pieces out and inspect them and turn them over and look at them. And sometimes we look at these beliefs and we're like, Oh man, that's a, that's terrible. I don't mm-hmm. want that anymore. And we toss it aside. Other times like, Actually, that's not too bad, but I'm going to put it back on the top in a different way. Like, I'm going to keep it, but it's going to be different. And what what I feel like I'm often straw, I'm often straw manned as, which is to say that those who are still in the more conservative end of the spectrum, what they want me to be is a person who just got my feelings hurt by evangelical Christianity and therefore walked, like took my ball and went home. Mm-hmm. And I understand what they're saying insofar as, yes, there was a sense in which I was rejected by my community and uh, and not given space to, like, ask these questions. But what they are not listening to me when I say to them, like, you're missing the part of the story, like, you're intentionally being uh, obtuse about this, is that what led me first to take these pieces out of the Jenga tower and discard some and keep others in a different way was diving into the Bible in a new way, was looking deeper at the person of Jesus, was understanding more fully what the Gospels were and what the Pauline epistles were and what the Torah is. Like, it was actually getting more uh, uh, um, serious about these things that caused me to have these radical shifts and radical changes in my beliefs. That's then what led to the rejection, and that's what then led to, like, oh, I just got kicked out of this church. Um, 
And yeah, I'm not an evangelical Christian anymore, but not because I got my feelings hurt. Yeah, well, I, and, and well, I think I want to talk about this as well. I mean, there's a, a, I think oftentimes people caricature progressive Christians as those who just sort of th- have thrown the Bible aside or yeah. are, are now just uh, prioritizing their experience or their feelings or something or popular culture and and not the scripture or the right. tradition. And, right. and your story is just one illustration in which that... Uh, in the ways in which that is just sort of a itself a straw, you know, a straw man. And so I appreciate you sharing that aspect of it. I mean, I'm assuming eventually you decided to leave leadership in that church or you were forced to one or the other. And yeah, yeah, uh, I was, I was fired by uh, uh, one of the churches that I went to work in Arizona. So I was in Oregon for a couple of years, moved to Arizona, continued this process of, of detangling this evangelical uh, construct but then eventually I was fired from that church when they discovered my theology on uh, on sexuality. So when the Jenga piece of what does the Bible say about homosexuality, when I took that one out and when I looked more deeply for the first time into the Bible passages that have historically been used to justify discrimination against those who identify mm-hmm. as LGBTQ and discovered, oh my God, we've gotten this wrong. Like this, these verses do not say what we were told they said. Uh, then when my church leaders found out that that's was my new theological position, yes, they fired me. And that was my sort of unceremonial exit yeah. once and for all from evangelical Christianity. Well, I w- yeah. And I want to talk about kind of why you stayed, but you're now passionate. You didn't leave Christianity. So many do. Yeah. You're now passionate about a more progressive form of Christianity. You ended up out of that. Uh, founding and leading along with your wife, Sojourn Faith Collective, the church you serve now, which is in uh, San Diego. You help start Launchpad, an incubator for new inclusive churches. I want to talk about those things in particular, but before we get to that, we've been using the term progressive Christianity and, and you were drawn to and now a leader in that movement. What does that mean? I mean, what are, for people who are just wondering, what do you mean when you say progressive Christians. How are progressive Christians different from evangelical Christians? Yeah. I think I think I'm 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 starting to realize that I need to be more clear about this term progressive because mm-hmm. it has become more popularly associated with a particular political uh movement, which is totally fine, right? So we have progressives in America that are on the, you, you might say, the very far left end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so what often happens now is that to hear the term progressive Christian, what they hear is uber, hyper, liberal left politics mixed with Christianity. And what I want to say is that there is a elements of that that <clears throat> that is true, meaning there are many shared values and similarities within like a progressive political movement that can be mapped on fairly well to a progressive Christianity. Yes, it is kind of that. But for me, what is just as much a part, Matt, of what I mean by progressive Christian, what's just as much a part as sort of some of the beliefs and the values and the way that we view ourselves and each other um, and a way that we advocate for the marginalized and a way that we want to, to sort of squash certain structures and hierarchies that have long oppressed people like all of that's true but what i think is sometimes not as much part of the conversation about what it means to be a progressive christian is what i mean is that progressive is like a a posture that a person takes toward their environment which says i actually think that we can progress i actually think that we can do better than we are i actually think that we can look around and we can make assessments about what currently is and the ones that like the mountains that need to be brought down and the valleys that need to be raised, wherever there needs to be change and and adjustments made to our culture, our society, our systems to be progressive is to say, we have not yet attained wholeness. We have not yet attained perfection, which is a different conversation. If that can ever be attained. But my point is progressive for me is just as much a posture that says we can keep looking at our world and ourselves and our families and our communities, and we can keep assessing and saying, where do we need to improve? So for me to be a progressive Christian is to say, Christianity did not reach its height in the year 60 AD. And humanity and humans did not reach their 
full capacity as what it means to be whole and human in the year 32. Like the world changes, culture changes, context changes. How do we keep asking of ourselves and each other, okay, who's being left behind? Who's being forgotten? Who's being oppressed now? Who's who's Who needs extra love and care? How can we do better? And that's an orientation that I have towards the world. That's what it means for me to be progressive. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, and there are, there are a lot of different ways in which people understand that term. A lot of Christian leaders would define it uh, a little bit uniquely. But one feature, I would say, of a lot of progressive Christianity is maybe rethinking some of the church's traditional teachings in light of scripture and a changing world and kind of a a belief that the spirit is sort of continuing to move. The spirit didn't just say something 2000 years ago and it said it in concrete, but kind of continuing to work in the hearts of people. And one of the, one of the things that a lot of progressive Christians have really rethought is the church's inclusion of LGBTQ people. I mean, this has been a long time dividing line between progressives and evangelical Christians. And uh, you mentioned how that was sort of the the Jenga piece that got you finally removed from your uh, evangelical church. But you ended up writing a book called Unclobber, and it's a, about rethinking our misuse of the Bible on homosexuality. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about, about this. I mean, you wrote a book about what the Bible says about this. Can you talk about what that issue was like for you and how your heart changed over time? Because I think a lot of Christians grew up with a, just sort of a given understanding of what, quote, the Bible says about uh, gay people uh, or queer people. So can you talk a little bit about that change in your own heart? Shortly after college, when I was going through the process to become licensed in my church so I could officially be a pastor and marry people and bury people, I was studying the denomination's um, like policies and procedures manual to you know get ready for the test that I would have to take to make sure that I was qualified in their denomination to to be a pastor. And there was a sentence in there, Matt, that um, I forget the exact wording, but I'll never forget how I felt. I was walking through the lobby on my lunch break, reading the manual, studying for my upcoming test, and there's a sentence in there that said that practicing homosexuals are not permitted membership in the church. Now, at that time, my my mind was firmly rooted and established in evangelical world, conservative, traditional doctrine in Mm -hmm. that sense. So I, quote unquote, knew that the Bible was against homosexuality and that the right answer was that that's not God's best. And yet in that moment, when I read that sentence and kept reading to see that where like gay people in the church could serve and where they couldn't serve, right? They could be ushers perhaps, but they couldn't work with children. They could tithe and give their money, sure, but they couldn't ever be elders or leaders in the church. I remember that moment being conscious of this rupture between my head and my heart, which is to say my head, I knew all the right doctrine, but my heart was like, oh, but why, why are we treating people like this? Why are we creating this harsh division, this barrier, this wall that says that you are less than, and you don't, you don't get the same sort of access to God that others do. And so that for me was this, the first moment where I had this realization that my head and my heart were not on the same page. (laughs) And that set me on a journey over the next couple of years. So to really look into the, the matter, to really look into what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Mm-hmm. And it was driven by this need in my own spirit to be aligned. And I didn't know how, I didn't know where the journey was going to take me. I didn't know if I was going to land on the, okay, actually, nope. After the, after research, the Bible uh, actually is anti-LGBTQ. So heart, you got to just get on the bandwagon. I'm sorry, yeah. that doesn't feel good, but you got to go. I didn't know if it was going to go that direction or if it was going to go the other direction of, okay, maybe we've gotten this wrong. And clearly that's where I wound up. But for me, it was a journey of um, really trying to find alignment and be true to what I found. And yeah, this uh, sort of example of what you said earlier, that it was your actually your deepening understanding of right. scripture that yeah. led you out of it. But one, yeah. you know, one thing I get, your book really focuses on, you know, the, 
the six or so passages of scripture that have been used over the years to exclude or condemn LGBTQ people. And I mean, I'll get the question. So I'm like, why even, you know, the Bible says some things. Why try to explain it differently? Why don't we just ignore that? It's an outdated text. Why did you think it was important to write a whole book about these passages instead of just saying, look, it said it, it was outdated. We just need to move on. I'll say this. I I don't begrudge a person for whom uh, they might take that approach Mm -hmm. to the text and just say, it might be something like, you know what? Yeah. I can see that Paul, for instance, probably was anti LGBTQ, but Bro, that was 2,000 years ago, and let's just move on. Like, yeah. that, let's not let that. I, I, I can, I understand that that is a, a route that some people take. However, for me and for the audience by which I was writing for and for the demographic for which I'm hoping to reach with this, that approach to the Bible is not going to be appealing or sufficient. Right. Okay? They're going to they're gonna need uh, engagement with the text. They're going to need... To, uh, to see that you can actually, and this is what I argue in the book, and this is what I truly believe, I'm not just making this up, that you can actually engage these texts, put them in their historical and their, their, their literary context, and you can actually get closer, I think, closer to understanding what was originally intended by the author, how the original audience would have understood these texts, what it meant in that culture, and then how we can understand that today. I think you can actually go to the heart of these things part of these six passages and discover on the other side that not only have we gotten them wrong and by wrong, I just mean, not only do they not present a argument that makes God against those who identify LGBTQ or that creates a biblical justification to discriminate, not only that, but actually some of these texts lead to a pathway for a more open and inclusive and, and uh, uh, compassionate faith, which I think is actually pretty remarkable. Like Romans one for me is one of those where like, no, if you actually get what Paul's doing here, oh my God, it actually leads you to a, a bigger table of, of greater inclusion. But I think the audience that I was writing for needed to engage with these texts and not dismiss them. And that was why I chose that route. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate that. That's what I've done consistently in my ministry. I mean, some people, especially those outside the church, think exactly as you said, like, hey, look, Paul said this, why don't we just move on? But, you know, I, I think what a lot of people don't understand is for committed Christians, this scripture is... Uh, we, we believe it to be not just another book. I mean, this is uh, God breathed in some sense. And so we have to wrestle with it. But the cool thing for me is what you named that there may be things in the Bible that we look at and say, man, the Bible said this, it's pretty clear, but I just really disagree with it. But actually the passages about um, LGBTQ people are really ones, as you said, that you can read and study and they actually don't say what so many people have been taught that they say. And that's a really liberating thing, especially for gay Christians to say, I, I I don't just get to be gay despite what the Bible says, but the Bible actually doesn't say that I've been living under sort of a lie about what the Bible says. And in fact, the Bible may, may indeed make more room for me may call me in, not exclude. And, and that's really powerful, I think, in the lives of LGBTQ people who uh, follow Jesus. And mm-hmm. it's a, it is a great project, and I really commend it to people, you know, who, who are in that camp of like, yeah, but the Bible says it, and I just can't get around that piece. You need to read uh, about these passages and unclobber, you know, it's kind of a great way to, to do that. But I want to I want to kind of move forward because it's it's not just LGBTQ people who've experienced rejection by the traditional evangelical church. Yeah. I mean, you kind of talked about your dad and divorce. You know, when we were kids, that was kind of a big deal. That was another point of rejection. Some people, it's because they doubt or they question, and doubts and questions aren't welcome. Some people, it's because you know, their lives are messy. So they make a mistake or they sin in some way and the church doesn't embody the forgiveness that we talk so much about. I'm, what I'm curious about though is a lot of people listening have faced rejection by the church. But the question I think a lot of people ask is like, well, you know, why should I give the church a second chance? And 
you did. I mean, you didn't just leave evangelical Christianity and say, you know, I'm done with this. This whole project is anti-gay. I'm just going to do something different with my life. But you stayed in. So what do you say to people who are looking at this? They've felt rejected by the church and they're really wondering, like, is this really worth staying in? Or maybe it's just time for me to, to dip. Is it okay if I answer that in two ways? Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I just don't know how we're doing for time. And I know I can, uh, I can get long-winded. Okay, first of all, I'll answer for myself. Because one of the questions that I heard in that is, why am I still doing yeah. this? And I think the, the best way that I can answer that is that there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus and his friends are walking by Jericho and there's a blind man sitting out on the side of the road and he shouts out, Jesus, somehow he knew that Jesus was walking by. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And his disciples, Jesus didn't hear him. And the disciples say, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. Like we have things to do. We have places to go. Hush, hush. And then the guy just gets louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which finally catches the ear of Jesus. And I like to imagine, Matt, that in that moment, Jesus had a couple options. He could have just hollered back across the road like, yeah, what's up? What you need, bud? Um, he could have maybe just sort of intuited, oh, it's a blind guy. He probably would, he'd probably like to see again. I'll just heal him from afar. He maybe could have done one of those magical spit dirt balls and just sort of flung it across the road. But what he does in this story is he turns to his disciples and he says, go get him and bring him to me. And I remember reading that a few years ago and it struck me to the core because what I see Jesus doing in that is he's turning to the very people who had just moments before prevented access to him. He turns to them and he says, now it's your job to go get him. Mm -hmm. You built the wall that kept this guy on the outside. And now it's your responsibility to tear that wall down, go into the ditch and make sure that all people can have access to the love of God. So part of why I, I'm still in the game, Matt, is because I'm conscious that not only in me personally have I spent years building walls to decide who's in and who's out, not only personally have I been invested in that project in my past as a conservative, traditional evangelical Christian that has decided what it takes to be a Christian, who is, who isn't, but, the, but sort of my people, which is to say those who identify as straight white dudes have for too long been the ones that have controlled everything, especially in the church world. And so I am of the demographic that I'm like, okay, my people built these walls. I need to be a part of tearing them down. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why I'm still in the game, Matt, is because I have this personal responsibility to try to undo some of the damage that I have done and that people like me have done. And then secondly, to those who are might be listening, um, who have experienced harm, pain, rejection from the church or from the religion of Christianity or from church leaders. Honestly, Matt, there are some people who have, like I experienced a a type of rejection. Yes, it hurt and it sucked and I lost my job and lost my house and all that. And I live in a society where I was able to bounce back, Yeah, right? The type of rejection wasn't a type of rejection that got me to my core. There are others who have experienced a sort of pain and suffering from religion where honestly, I would never blame them if they never wanted to go back to a church again. Why would they? That pain might be so deep. Um, yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense that you would want nothing to do with that. Yeah. So I don't, and I've even had people that have come to Sojourn and they've shared some of their story. And part of my pastoral counsel to them is, hey, maybe don't. Maybe don't go to church for like six months. Maybe just take some time off. Don't pick up the Bible. Don't just give yourself the space to sort of not be in this for a while. And then, but the other thing I would say, and I'll I'll promise I'll make this quick, is that part of the reason why therapy works, the the model of talk therapy, is that you're sitting in in an office with a non-judgmental person, your therapist, a safe space to just process things because nobody's listening that's going to judge you or, or blame you for it. And so what happens is you you share in this safe space some of the, the traumatic experiences that you might have gone through in your life. And what happens is your brain 
which has all these negative feelings and emotions attached to these stories, when you retell them in a safe context, your brain actually gets to rewire new pathways and connect new emotional experiences to these stories so that now you are less triggered by them moving forward. This is how people who come home from war heal from PTSD, not by avoiding all their triggers, but by diving deep back into and retelling these stories, reliving the experiences in a safe place where they can begin to get new emotional experiences. So I think sometimes, actually, something I think about, I've seen this for seven years now, yeah. when people come to church and they're able to process and tell their stories of pain and rejection and trauma from the church in a context that is very similar to the ones that are the experience of the pain, but also wildly different because now it's non-judgmental, it's safe, it's full of love and compassion. Suddenly people can experience a unique type of healing from their church wounds because they're actually in a church context yeah. again. And they might not have been able to experience that same sort of healing if they were not to ever come back to church just because the pain that happened in that context sometimes needs to be healed in a similar albeit wildly different, right. i.e. non-judgmental safe space. So and I see what, that all the time. Yeah. You know, it happens okay. at the gathering, yeah, I and I know it happens for in, in your church as well, and it's a compelling mm -hmm. reason, I think, for people to to not run from, but in some cases uh, maybe give it a chance to be healed in a much different context. Well, I, there's so many things I want to ask you, but I'm going to end with this because I sort of said it at the beginning um, you now, for seven years, have have led a progressive, you know, Christian church. I just want to end with, you know, what are the the challenges that you see facing the progressive Christian church? Where do we need to be spending time and energy? Uh, and uh, what are the challenges that that you think, or the work that you think, uh, remains undone for progressive Christians? Part of what makes a person drawn towards something like progressive Christianity is they score really high on like the personality uh, of openness. So they're, they're really open to new ideas, which is great. So we need that. Openness is wonderful. Uh, but what, what can happen then is you get a bunch of people who are sort of in this open-minded, progressive, tolerant space, and then when you try to do any work to sort of coalesce and bring them together around some shared ideas and shared values so that you can work on something bigger than yourself, then it begins to get real, uh, it can get real ugly real fast. Yeah, And and that's sort of something that for those who may maybe make their shift away from conservative to more progressive spaces, they might come with this sort of wide-eyed uh idea that, yeah, now we have this big tent and tolerance and it's beautiful, but what can happen quickly is like, oh, no, like, don't try to ask me to get along with someone else who's different from me. Like, part of why we're over here in this space is because we're all so different. And so the, the fear of moving towards any space that might be where you maybe, maybe, Matt, you like, you say, yeah, this is really important to me, but for the sake of the whole, I'm going to set this aside because there's mm -hmm. something bigger. Like, conservatives are great at this. They are great at sort of finding the main thing, the big thing, and saying, put all your other stuff aside because this is the thing we're all working on. They're right. really good at that. And progressives, we just we, we nitpick and we stay in our own little silos and we get obsessed around our own ideas and we, we don't really know how to play together really well. So that, I think, is one of the big challenges that progressives face. Is And, and again, it makes sense because we're so wired towards openness, but then we fear anything that has to do with building uh, systems or organizations or institutions, all the things that you need to actually preserve the gains that progressive movements make. We have, a, we have, we have like an allergic reaction to that. Yeah. So we got to figure out how to better play along with each other. And then secondly, I think specifically within like the Christian context, I think we need to figure out how to tell the story better. In evangelical conservative world, there's a really easy story to tell. God is a perfect God. The world has fallen. You are inherently broken. The only way that you can become whole again is by this sacrifice on a cross. You pray this prayer. Now you're whole. Yeah. Like it's a, it is a pretty easy story to tell yeah. that has a pretty compelling thrust to it. Mm -hmm. Now, theologically, I think it's a real 
problematic story and it has all sorts of holes and it doesn't really hold up to to truth. But over on the progressive side, it can be a little harder to really capture the imaginations for people like, what is the big story we're telling? What is the thing we're asking them to be a part of? It's bigger than themselves. Because yeah. a lot of people come to progressive Christian churches, they get some like immediate sense of healing from maybe their old wounds. And then they're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm actually good, good now. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I need church anymore. And it's like, yeah, you actually don't. You're fine. You don't need to come to church. But it'd be really great if you did, because we're trying to build something here. That's yeah, what's than at just stake? Us. That's a really, I think, important thing for progressive Christians to reclaim. You know? yeah. What's at stake in this story? If it's yeah. not, hey, you're going to, you know, believe this or else you're going to go to hell. If it's not that, then what is it? What's yeah. at stake? Yeah, that's yeah. a great way to put it. Well, I, you know, I said this at the beginning. I said it off air. I think that um, much of what you're saying resonates with me. Uh, I, you know, the gathering, the church I serve is a church that, uh, has been different in a lot of ways from other evangelical churches. The top of the list is, uh, being welcoming of LGBTQ people into all levels of leadership. It doesn't stop there. It really, uh, embodies some of these other things that, that you're talking about. I know that your church, uh, Sojourn Grace Collective is trying to live that out. And there are a lot of other churches. I always tell people this, a lot of other churches all over the United States, uh, churches can look different. And so uh, a bad experience at one doesn't necessarily mean that every church looks like this. And I just don't think enough people realize that there are these kinds of churches available uh, for them to continue to explore faith in. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing um, for that. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. I agree. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for the invitation. Keep doing the good work. Keep doing the good work. We need it. So much for listening today. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe if you're not officially subscribed, wherever you get your podcast, review it, share this podcast with somebody else. I bet there's somebody that will find today's conversation especially interesting. So I hope that you'll do that. Again, look for the podcast every Tuesday morning. It will be dropped so you can listen to it on your way to work or while you're taking a walk or a run or exercising or whatever. We'd love for you to, to do that and share it with somebody else. And lastly, Find me on Facebook, Pastor Matt Miofsky. Uh, you can leave me comments. You can ask questions there. I would love to interact with you there, and I will be putting the podcast there each week as well. You can find it. So uh, I hope that you will do that. Again, it is always great to have you. I will see you next week. Next week.